This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we're celebrating a 50th anniversary this year. That's right, Mark. It has been 50 years since the Surgeon General's first report on the harm of cigarette smoking and its direct link to lung cancer was revealed. Well, the Surgeon General's report back in 1964 ultimately led to a sharp drop in the number of people smoking. It's still the leading cause of preventable deaths in this country. Just under a half a million people a year die from smoking-related illnesses. And it is interesting to note, Mark, that the numbers have declined more in recent years thanks to the smoking bans now in place in most public spaces. You know, these public health policies and social marketing impact really has an impact on the health and well-being of a population. New York City just celebrated 10 years of a public smoking ban and noted that an estimated 10,000 lives have been saved in that city alone as a result. New York City has certainly been a trailblazer, as well as other states across the country who have increased the taxes on uh, cigarette smoking. I think that may be one of the reasons there's been a dramatic decline in the recent years in the number of young to middle-aged adults being diagnosed with lung cancer, as well as the bans on smoking. These are certainly uh, preventative interventions at work. And we need all the good work we can get because we still have opposition. Hard to believe, but the tobacco industry is still working on its business, which is a profit business. A recent study showed that cigarettes being manufactured today are actually made with more addictive levels of nicotine in them than in years past. As the Institute of Medicine's Dr. Harvey Feinberg recently told us, greed is definitely one of the seven deadly sins when it comes to negative impacts on health. Our guest today is Dr. Rashika Fernanda Poulet, the founder and CEO of Iora Health. That's a Cambridge-based startup that's seeking to reinvent primary care from the ground up. He's been lauded by several noted healthcare industry analysts as a real innovator with his care model. And we'll also be hearing from Lori Robertson, the managing editor of factcheck.org. She's always uncovering misrepresented facts about health policy that appear in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by Googling CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll get to our interview with Rashika Fernanda Poulet in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. There's a doc fix in the mix. A rare bipartisan agreement has been reached in committees in both the House and Senate that would permanently do away with the SGR formula, which controls the reimbursement for doctors treating Medicare patients. But there is a rub finding the funds necessary to repeal the so-called doc fix SGR formula that was put in place in 1997 and install a new system which would guarantee doc reimbursements of half a percent per year for five years, allowing for the time it'll take as Medicare transitions to a payment system designed to reward physicians based on the quality of care provided rather than the quantity as the current payment formula does. The package, sponsored by Republican and Democratic leaders of the Senate Finance and House Ways and Means and House Energy and Commerce panels, was unveiled shortly before Senate-confirmed Finance Chairman Max Baucus of Montana to become the next U.S. ambassador to China. Baucus has made the SGR fix a top policy priority and had hoped to wrap up a deal before his departure. For more than a decade, Congress has struggled to find a permanent solution to the SGR, but has ended up passing temporary patches and punting the issue to the next following year. 
American Medical Association President Artis D. Hoven urged lawmakers to take action before the current SGR patch expires April 1st. She says Congress has been debating the shortcoming of the SGR for more than a decade. She says continuing the cycle of short-term patches by merely addressing the 2014 cut that is imminent April 1st without solving the underlying problem would be fiscally irresponsible. Doctors face a 24 percent cut in their Medicare reimbursements if Congress doesn't change current policy as they have every year for the past several. Some of the aspects of the doc fix measure, consolidation of three Medicare quality payment programs into one that rewards providers who meet performance thresholds and improves care for seniors. Also, a voluntary alternative payment model that would provide a 5% bonus for physicians who choose to join. Also, a physician developed clinical care guidelines to help reduce inappropriate care that would harm patients and result in wasteful spending. The deal also includes several measures to expand the use of of Medicare data for transparency and quality. Meanwhile, back in the states, they're still working out kinks in the exchanges. Massachusetts has brought in a top gun from Blue Cross to fix the problems plaguing their exchange, which launched October 1st and was developed and implemented by CGI, the same company that botched the federal rollout. Oregon, Maryland, and Minnesota are also experiencing ongoing growing pains with their exchanges. And Maryland has enacted a panel of independent parties to scrutinize that state's exchange. Meanwhile, New Hampshire's lawmakers have reached across the aisle to find agreement on Medicaid expansion in that state, which is fully funded by the federal government for the first three years. After that, New Hampshire's measure would ease some of those at or near that 138 percent of poverty line and will be coaxed into the insurance exchange market instead of continuing on Medicaid. Meanwhile, a study shows that more than any other social program, the Affordable Care Act is poised to give the bottom fifth of the economic pool in the United States their first real economic boost that guaranteed health coverage either through Medicaid or subsidized health insurance is going to improve their economic standing by some 6%, while the upper middle class will likely shoulder a bit more of that burden. And we're at a plateau when it comes to outpatient antibiotic prescriptions for children. A recent study shows the downward trend in prescribing antibiotics in children has leveled off. There had been, for the most part, a steady decline of pediatric antibiotics prescriptions over the past decade. And CVS is earning kudos for a recently made policy adjustment. The nation's largest pharmacy chain will stop selling cigarettes entirely by October of this year. The company leadership saying they couldn't reconcile their quest to promote better health with the knowledge that cigarettes are the leading cause of preventable death and disease in this country. I'm Mariano Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Rushika Fernanda-Bolay, co-founder and CEO of Iora Health, an innovative Cambridge-based startup that is seeking to transform healthcare delivery in this country. Dr. Fernando-Bolay was the first executive director for the Harvard Interfaculty Program for Health Systems Improvement and co-founded the Boston-based Renaissance Health. He was featured as an innovator in Dr. Atul Gawande's New Yorker article, Hotspotter. Dr. Fernando-Bolay is on the faculty at Harvard Medical School, where he received his MD. Dr. Fernando Poulet, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you very much. So Dr. Fernando Poulet, you say that the healthcare system is failing us and needs to be reinvented, starting with the primary care system. So you're in the process of creating a new approach to the delivery of healthcare, one that you say is reinventing the model of healthcare delivery from scratch, a model that can be both 
effective, and I'm going to add efficient and, and maybe elegant as well, and ultimately lowering the cost of healthcare over time. Describe for us how this system is failing us first and why we need to essentially reinvent the wheel in healthcare delivery. The gap between what we pay for healthcare and the quality of the services we receive in this country is, I think, probably the biggest business problem that faces us. Uh, we spend an obscene amount of money on healthcare. It's 17 or 18 percent of our GDP. It's two and a half trillion dollars. It's bankrupting individuals. It's bankrupting companies who can't compete internationally. And it's bankrupting the country. If you look at federal budget deficits over the next 50 years, they're really all being driven by Medicare and Medicaid going up. And we have to get a handle on healthcare spending. You know, we're spending so much, but yet the quality we get is awful. Anyone who's tried to get health care knows that it's depersonalized, it's fragmented, it's reactive, and the outcomes are embarrassingly poor. The 30-day readmission rate for Medicare is 21%. You know, defect rates like that would be a cause for huge alarm in any other industry. We think primary care is the right place to start. If you want to fix health care, you've got to fix practices. Um, the bulk of the challenge in healthcare today is chronic disease. It's diabetes, hypertension, lung disease, and primary care is a great place to manage that. And I think there's a, the movement toward medical homes and accountable care. What everyone else is doing is trying to tweak existing primary care practices, take existing practices and make them a little better uh, by changing a little thing here, giving them a computer, adding email, but by and large leaving the rest the same. And our proposition has simply been that why don't we just start from scratch? The system is so fundamentally broken that maybe what we need to do is actually just start over, break the rules, and create a new model that can really deliver care in a very different way. Tell us about that model. Um, tell us how you threw out all the rules and started all over again. What did you build? The first part of the model is really changing the, the payment model. So the way that we pay most doctors in this country, and, and virtually all primary care doctors, is what we call fee-for-service. You get paid per sick visit. So you come to see me, the doctor, I do whatever, I do a diagnosis, I give you a treatment. I then assign a code. It's a thing called CPT code. Very arcane set of rules. And then I bill, and then I may or may not get paid for that sick visit. So we get paid per doctor sick visit. Guess what happens? We get lots of doctor sick visits, and we don't at all focus on actually improving people's health. Uh, primary care is really about a continuous healing relationship. The way for pay for a relationship is like a gym membership. It's a fixed amount per month to just allow us to figure out how to take care of people. And number two is primary care in the U.S. is typically about 4% of the healthcare dollar. Um, that's ridiculous. That means that 96% is what I call failure of primary care. You end up in the hospital, the emergency room. So what we say is we should double down on primary care. We should put at least double the resources into it. That will actually keep people out of trouble on the back end. The second piece is that now allows us to be completely creative in changing the delivery model. And so it really is about getting a team of people to work with the patient, to help them with all the blocking and tackling it takes to, to manage your health. And we have a concept of a health coach, which is someone from the community who is not necessarily a nurse or a doctor, but someone with good interpersonal skills who can really help patients make a plan, know what to track, answer questions. And we just think it's so much more powerful to do it from the community, live in person. Everyone gets a shared care plan where we make a plan of how we're going to improve your health, whether it's losing weight or learning to run a marathon or whatever. Uh, and then we can interact with you in a whole variety of ways, so not just visits. But this is 2013. We should be able to interact by email, by text message, by video chat, and we do all of those things. A lot of our interactions are in groups, so people with diabetes, we have a diabetes club, a yoga group, ways to engage people as so patients can engage each other. We integrate mental health into the practice. 
because a lot of the barriers to getting good health care is actually depression or anxiety, and we should be helping that, not just trying to send you off somewhere else. And then the third part of the model really is when you start doing this completely different care delivery, what I call population management, you realize that the IT systems we have in typical healthcare are completely wrong. Despite all the, you know, hoo-ha about electronic medical records, what they really are are fancy billing systems to allow doctors to code, document, and bill higher. Doesn't improve care at all. And we realize we need a different sort of IT system to help us actually manage populations, engage patients in their care. Uh, and so that we've built that ourselves. I wonder... Uh, how you see this spread happening, and maybe you can talk a little bit about Iora Health and uh, the team that you've assembled there. But it seems that you're going to have to connect uh, with enough businesses who are willing to, uh, or government entities who are willing to change that payment model, and that really drives so much of the uh, opportunities for the redesign and redefinition of that primary care space. And then having the technical capabilities of uh, using uh, managing data efficiently. And uh, is this concept that you think can spread and talk to us how you think it might spread. Yeah, so you're exactly right. So the constraint on our growth at the moment is finding uh, what I call sponsors, which are people who are on the hook for healthcare spending, who are willing to pay us differently. Now, again, I think that the way we're doing it now doesn't work, so we should be trying all sorts of different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you know, change is hard for many, many folks. We've had the most success you know, signing up with, with either large self-insured employers like the Boeing Company, like Dartmouth College. We have a practice up in Hanover, New Hampshire, as well as union trusts. So in many places, parts of the country, the union trust is who's been delegated uh, the authority to sort of provide health benefits. So in Las Vegas, we work with the Casino Workers Union, work with a group called the Freelancers Union in, in New York and Brooklyn. So you're exactly right. So what we need to do is find more payers who are willing to pay us differently. Now, I think what's going to make this work and get this to big scale is what's happening in health reform, which is really patients uh, more and more uh, buying health care themselves. As you know, with these exchanges coming on board and with changes in employers, many employers are likely over the next five or so years to stop providing insurance to folks. I think many employers are going to start saying, uh, instead of us providing you health insurance, we're going to give you, you know, X thousand dollars a year, go buy yourself a health plan on one of these exchanges. So now all of a sudden, consumers are able to uh, go and purchase a product. And again, I think what we're doing in New York is we're bundling our practice with the health plan together as one offering, and that's something that consumers very much like. But I wonder, uh, Dr. Fernando Pillay, if you could tell us a little more about these primary care teams We know from what you wrote about uh, the Atlantic City experience, these were patients who, beyond needing a little, they really needed a lot because they were using an awful lot of care uh, in the emergency room. So tell us about the people you put on that primary care team. How did you engage those patients in their care? You hit the nail right on the head. The most important thing we need to do is engage patients. We are then able to sort of help them manage their health better, change behavior, et cetera. Uh, That's where our health coaches come in. And, uh, you know, a a quick story. We had a patient in Atlantic City. As he said, uh, her name was Joyce. And she came into the practice completely out of control. Her diabetes was out of control. Her blood pressure was out of control. She was in and out of the emergency room, not taking her medications, sort of disheveled-looking came into the practice, and then six months later I saw her, and she looked amazing. She was put some makeup on, her hair was combed, diabetes and hypertension in good control, taking her meds, back to work, no ER visits. And I said, Joyce, what did we do different? What have we done to really help you? She said, well, actually, Doc, it's, it's pretty simple. My health coach, Millie, cared about me. She taught me to care about myself, 
and I didn't want to let either of us down. Mm. So it was almost that simple, right? So all this other stuff we're doing, all to mediate that relationship between the patient, the doctor, and their health coach, to engage people in their care, so they can start paying attention and start making changes. And that's why the team is so important. I think there's too much focus uh, has been on the doctor. The doctor is what I call the system architect, but a lot of the impact is actually not by the doctors, by the other folks on the team. We're speaking today with Dr. Roshika Fernanda Boulay, co-founder and CEO of an innovative Cambridge-based startup that is seeking to transform healthcare delivery in this country. So talk to us a little bit about the IT systems that you've developed. So we've built our system from the ground up, like we built our practice from the ground up, in order to mediate sort of better care. So it's built around actually tracking the things that we think we ought to track for each patient to maximize their health. For instance, if you're a diabetic, we have a thing called markers, and there are a number of markers we should be tracking, your hemoglobin A1C, your blood pressure, your LDL, whether you had a foot exam. We program all those things in, and we track how you're doing. We call it the care collaboration platform, and it allows everyone on the team, including the patient, to see the record and interact with it and actually even put information into it. So what we do is we have task lists associated with each person on the team, including the patient and the health coach and the doctor, and the system keeps track of all the things we need to do. If the system sees that a patient has an A1C that's overdue, it puts a task on the health coach's task list to get a hold of the patient and tell them they need an A1C checked. Uh, similarly, if we prescribe a medicine, we get a feed from the pharmacy benefit manager and we look to see for a fill. And if the patient didn't fill the medicine within 48 hours, we put a task on the health coach's task list for that patient to reach out, why didn't you pick up your medicine? We get data from everywhere. We get census data from the hospitals in the market, so we know when our patients are in the hospital or in the ER. And patients can input in data from you know, their blood pressure or their glucometer, or then when things go off the rails, we then can reach out and figure out what happened. We also can create some very elaborate dashboards, so we poll our patients and get uh, patient experience data, and we also get all the claims data from our sponsors because they're the payers uh, to know when people are in the hospital and the ER and go to specialists and get imaging tests. So we can now create these 360-degree dashboards where we can see how is each patient doing, how is each health coach doing with their patients, and how is each practice doing. If you look at just one of them, you can get into trouble. It's in the cloud. It's Ruby on Rails. It's used to thing called Agile Development, where every two weeks we have a new release. And so as we figure out there are ways we can do things better, we can feed it back to our team and we can change the system so it can be made better. So every two weeks it keeps improving. Dr. Fernando Pillay, let's put our policy hats on for just a moment. And obviously cost containment is a holy grail Maybe tell us a little bit about that, and then I want to just follow up for a minute on primary care providers to patient ratios. So maybe first on cost. I think whenever people set out to try and save healthcare costs, it's too tempting to do the wrong thing and just skimp on care. Uh, what we've been able to see, if you take our patients and, and compare them to control groups, what you find is that the primary care costs go up because that's the model. Drug spending actually goes up a little bit because people actually take their medications. But then there are big, roughly 50% drops in emergency room visits. It's about a 25% drop in other outpatient costs, and the net spending drops by anywhere from 12 or 13% up to 20% in our Boeing project. So, uh, so big drops in total spending. This is, you know, better care cheaper. 
and it's cheaper because we're actually doing the right thing for patients. And if um, I can just ask you a, a quick follow-up question to that again, sir, from a policy perspective, we've kind of grown up in this country over the last decades thinking one primary care provider could care for somewhere between 1,200 and 2,000 patients. And then the concierge movement came along and people said, well, we can do a great job as long as we're only taking care of 300 or 400. What is your sense of the impact of your model and your primary care teams? How many patients can they manage? And is that a question you've even tried to tackle? And so it's a very important question. You know, so the game is, should not be to squeeze primary care as much as possible, right? Primary care is 4% of the healthcare dollar. So if the right thing to do is spend more in primary care, we should be doing that. I think what the concierge practices do is simply have a doctor if fewer patients is a dumb way to do it because much of the value can be delivered by people who is not the doctor. What we ask the question is what are the things that the doctor should do because that's what we're trained to do and what are the things that you don't need a doctor to do and then I think engaging patients and tracking things and you know it's actually better done by someone else. I think we can have patients do a lot more things self-service than we do now. So we actually think that we will eventually have doctors who can take care of more patients than doctors do now. Again, leveraged by teams. So to be clear, in our practices, for every doctor, we have four health coaches, plus an admin person, plus a mental health person. So that's a big team of non-physicians who really can help with this. Um, you asked the question, will we have enough doctors out there. You know, I think part of the reason people aren't going to primary care is not just the money, which is what everyone focuses on. Primary care doctors get paid about half as much as many specialists do. It really is that the job simply sucks. You know, the typical primary care job, I had a colleague who once said, you know, every day I lose a little piece of my soul because I went into this thinking that I'd be able to take good care of my patients, and I'm just not able to. And I think what we're trying to do is provide settings where doctors can take great care of their patients. Uh, and we have no problem attracting great docs to work in our practices, and our doctors are incredibly happy. So I think if we do that, we create a different vision of what primary care is, we will have no problem attracting as many people as we want going into primary care. Dr. Fernando Boulay, we like to ask all of our guests this final question. When you look around the country and the world, what do you see in terms of innovations that our listeners at Conversation should be keeping an eye on? I think that some of the sort of engagement tools and some of the things that allow patients to track and take control of their own disease, as well as particularly in communities, are really interesting. So there are these communities of patients who are essentially helping each other better manage their health. And I think allowing patients to do a lot more self-service than we do in typical practices is really interesting. And, uh, you know, I think it's a great time to be doing this sort of work. We've been speaking today with Dr. Rushika Fernando Poulet, founder and CEO of Iora Health, a groundbreaking healthcare company that's seeking to transform healthcare delivery by improving patient outcomes and dramatically reducing costs in the process. You can learn more about the work that he does by going to iorahealth.com. Thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you very much. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, the Congressional Budget Office released a new report on the Affordable Care Act's impact on jobs and we quickly saw politicians distorting what the CBO said. House Majority Leader Eric Cantor claimed in Twitter messages that the report confirms what Republicans have been saying for years and that millions of hardworking Americans will lose their jobs. 
Actually, the CBO said that more than 2 million people will decide to not work or decide to work fewer hours because of the law, not that they would, quote, lose their jobs. The report estimated a reduction in full-time employment of about 2.3 million by 2021 and said that's almost entirely due to a drop in the amount of labor that workers choose to supply. CBO released a similar analysis back in August 2010, but the estimated reduction in employment was much lower, the equivalent of around 800,000 jobs. So why would folks decide to work less? CBO explained that the subsidies and Medicaid coverage in the law effectively give people more financial resources. Also, those nearing retirement will retire earlier because the law offers protections for health insurance, limiting price increases for older people, and guaranteeing coverage of pre-existing conditions. In other words, older Americans don't have to hold on to a job just for the insurance. The report does provide fodder for Republicans who criticize the law for providing disincentives to work. CBO says that the sliding scale of insurance subsidies will prompt some to not work or work less in order to avoid losing out on the subsidies. But it's a distortion to claim a CBO report on workers choosing to work less is the same as workers losing their jobs. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Smoking continues to be the number one preventable cause of premature death in this country, leading to over 440,000 deaths per year. And while quitting remains a challenge to most smokers, the tobacco industry continues to spend billions of dollars on promotion and lobbying. A new study released by the International Tobacco Control Policy Evaluation Project shows that putting graphic warning labels on the outside of cigarette packs leads to significant reduction in the number of smokers. In the late 90s, there was a concerted effort to really put the graphic images of what it's really like to get a smoking-related disease onto warning labels um, on cigarette packs. Uh, there are some images of, let's say, a dissected brain that has you know, a bloody spot that apparently is, is something from stroke caused by cigarette use. There's one that has a heart on it that uh, reminds people about the relationship between cigarettes and uh, heart attack. There's also one that has nasty tooth uh, disease, uh, dental disease. Dr. Jeffrey Fong of the University of Waterloo in Canada conducted the study analyzing Canada's smoking cessation rates from the year 2000, when Canada began ordering that a third of the cigarette pack be reserved for graphic images of diseased hearts and blackened lungs through 2009. The data showed a marked decrease in the number of smokers during that time, attributed largely to the presence of the graphic images in conjunction with strict smoking laws. And so what we did was we examined the period of time in Canada, uh, nine years before the warning label, the graphic warning labels came out at the end of 2000, and then compared it to the nine years afterwards from about 2001 to 2009. And what we found was that the, uh, there was a sharp 
uh, decline in the smoking rates after um, the warning labels compared to before. And we compared it to that same uh, period of time in the United States where there was no change in warning labels. So we had, in essence, a kind of a control country. And it showed that the decline in smoking rates after the warning labels in Canada were much greater than than for that same period of time in the United States where there was no change. Dr. Fong noted that when the FDA was given a directive to initiate policies that would lead to decreased smoking rates, it was given inconclusive data on the effectiveness of the use of such graphic images on cigarettes sold in America, so the practice was not initiated here, and he thinks that was a missed opportunity. Based on the Canadian numbers, Fong and his colleagues estimate that a similar program in the U.S. would lead to a dramatic reduction in the number of smokers here, as has been shown in Canada and other countries around the world who have initiated a similar practice. The relative reduction was between 12 and 20 percent. So if you take the smoking rates in the United States, I don't have them right in front of me, but they were about, at the time, about uh, in 2012, um, the smoking rates were about I believe about 23% in the United States, somewhere around there in the low 20s. And so therefore, and I know there are a lot of numbers here, uh, if you reduce that percentage by 12 uh, and 20%, you get between 5.3 and 8.6 million fewer smokers in the United States if they were to apply um, graphic warning labels of the type that uh, Canada put out. Placing graphic images of body parts that have been damaged and diseased by smoking, providing a visual deterrent to regular smokers and a graphic visual warning to young people considering smoking, something that could potentially lead to millions of Americans quitting and very likely prolonging their lives, now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.